Blade Runner 2049 continues to be the diamond beneath the sand. The impossible film that could never have been made. And yet it was. Perfectly. As we continue to explore the miracle that is the sequel to the original film, we find ourselves sitting down with Chris Summers, the first AC on 2049. In this hour-long interview, Chris takes us on an intimate journey on what it was like to be on set for a sequel 30 years in the making. Do you like our owl? How many questions does it usually take to spot? I don't get it, Tyrell. How many questions? 20, 30, cross-referenced. Fiery the angels fell. Deep thunder rolled around their shores, burning with the fires of a hawk. Your new models are happy scraping the shit. Because you've never seen a miracle. You imagined it was you. Oh, you did. You did. We all wish it was us. That's why we believe. All the best memories are hers. Welcome to Soul of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host, Patrick Green. Today, we are joined by guest of ours, Chris Summers, the first AC on Blade Runner 2049. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jamie, and thank you so much, Patrick. Uh, I'm honored to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you. We are thrilled to have you. We have another co-host who is in the waiting room about to be let into the call. This is Dan coming back from his day job. Um, we, we are connecting at a kind of an unusual time because you're in England right now working on something. We don't know what, uh, but we are so incredibly thrilled to have you here because you were there on set for the making of this film that we've come to love so dearly. And we, uh, we can't wait to pick your mind a little bit, but before we get into all that, uh, Jamie, I know we wanted to talk a little bit about your journey into, into film. If you want to kind of take us back to the beginning about how you got on this path that brought you to the work that you're doing now. I kind of fell into it at a very young age. I finished high school at age 17. And then as I turned 17 to 18, I got a job as a production assistant, a runner on film sets in South Africa in Cape Town, which is where I'm from originally. Got thrown in the deep end, literally baptism of fire. It was a Tony K commercial. It was three to four weeks long of shooting of a commercial. It was for Gatorade. It was on film. We had multiple cameras all over the place. And it was, like I said, a baptism of fire. But I loved it. From that point, I progressed and did many other things in the film industry. I went from being a production assistant, doing production for a while. Then I did uh, video, video assist, video takeoff. I did gripping for a while. I was a camera grip and then eventually fell into camera. I just love camera. You know, my, my father was a photographer. My grandfather was a photographer. Always been around photography and technology and video cameras and such. So I was just kind of drawn to that, I guess, very much. Started to do a lot of commercial work in Cape Town. Commercials took up most of my time in my formative years of being in this industry, let's say. Eventually, I started to connect with people and was able to make a move to the United Kingdom, which is where I lived and worked for a few years. 
film work wasn't that great. I was still kind of forming myself and that point moved into camera department, um, feeling that that was where I wanted to be and, and focus on for my career. And from that point, I eventually moved back to South Africa, but now I kind of uh, work internationally. I have a base um, in Hungary, Budapest, which is where I've been for the past 10 years now. It feels crazy to say it, but I've been here for a decade. It, it's flown by, I have to say. I still do, because we're in Europe, you know, I, I do travel to the UK for projects um, when I can, and I'm still quite active uh, in communities there. Uh, and part of the, the guild, I'm part of the guild of British camera technicians. Because it's Europe and small, I, I'm still able to, to do that, regardless of Brexit. But my base has been uh, Hungary for the past decade. When I came in here, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't on big jobs at all. I didn't come in, oh, okay, yeah, come on, on to, onto the show. I started out on local TV shows, earning like, you know, very little money. And, and I had to build myself up again even if I'd done studio projects a lot when I was back in South Africa and in the United Kingdom, but here nobody knew me, you know, from Boris Folk. doesn't matter what your CV says. Ultimately, you have to get along with the people. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter if it's the trainee or the DP. You've got to get on with all of them and they have to accept you. So that was an investment and in time for me and my life. And like I said, I've been here for 10 years now and I feel that that investment has been great because I've had a few jobs which I've been able to check off and go, if my dad was around, I would just be so happy to share these things with him. And that's like a retaining memory. Ultimately, if I look back and do this thing, you know, you want to have some sort of heritage to pass on or think about. And that was kind of my thinking with it. And it has been good. And Blade Runner was one of these, I would say, one of the three like most iconic jobs that I've done and incredibly grateful for it. So you were in Budapest before shooting Blade Runner. At that point, I feel like Budapest is becoming like the Atlanta, Georgia of Europe because <laughs> everything's getting filmed there. Was it like that when you first came to town? Like, why did you end up in Hungary? That's 100% correct. It is kind of like the Atlanta, Georgia of, of Europe at the moment. We're certainly the busiest place. The way I came here was because of a relationship. And also, I have to say, because of a, a, a want to return to Europe. UK was still part of Europe at that point. I wanted to improve my life. I wanted to explore my horizons and, and get the sort of jobs that I was kind of wanting to get um, so no I was pretty much a local so I was a local hire and to be very honest it wasn't it wasn't easy to get on the job I was vetted uh, quite a lot more than I've ever been vetted before and I don't think I had a terrible CV before that point I don't think <laughs> it took some negotiating but once I was on I was on and that was it you know and I can understand the vetting process, because this project, I would say, was if you were a fan of it, like I was, and so many other people are, you have more of a vested interest that it's got to be a good job and give it a little bit more. You know, even with Roger, I would say everyone knew we were all very conscious of the fact that he was due an Oscar after so many nominations. I mean, I certainly and a lot of people in camera were like, this has got to be the one for him. It has to be. And with all the other emotion and input and heritage, whatever you want to call it around this job or IP, I think everyone just put a little bit more in and added to the magic. I don't know. That was my experience anyway. So getting into working on the film in the first few days, so you're vetted for the job. What is the setup like? Are you in rehearsals? What what was the, the roll-up like for you? Roll-up was interesting. I got involved quite early, around April of 2016, March, April. No one was in town yet. Denis wasn't there. Roger wasn't there. You know, 
it was early days. The only people that were there was visual effects. And we were doing very early tests on the, the sequence of joy and, and the love scene uh, in Kay's apartment. Because these were, obviously joy as a character was a difficult thing to tackle as a concept because, you know, she's like a hologram that is being emitted from this thing that goes outside. All right, she's in the rain. How does the rain interact? You know, there were many things to, to tackle. And th that's what we started on. So the roll-up was literally just a camera, myself, a very basic camera package. And we walked into a stage that had nothing in it. It was an empty stage. And the security was strong, obviously. You know, had to have our badges and everything like everything had to be kept secret because everyone knew that this was something very special. It wasn't just about business. It was something that we really wanted to hold on to. I, I, that's the feeling I got all around. But that was the beginning. We started with dealing with visual effects department and trying to figure out how these particular scenes were going to play out and how they were going to do it from a technical point of view. And then about a month or two later, everyone came in and we started preparation. I worked on the job as B camera. Um, a camera was run by Andy Harris, who has been Roger's focus puller for, I don't know, 30 years now. And a lot of other people, you know, Roger has a core team of people that he works with and they've been there for multiple decades now and they, they run the show. So I was a guest, let's say, on B camera. Um, and I was very grateful to be there and happy for the opportunity. And yeah, that was kind of the beginning of the job. The guys have mentioned we've only had a couple of opportunities to talk to people that were directly on set for Blade Runner things for both films. And uh, I, I'm sure you know, we're very, very passionate about these projects. And so we're, I'm, I'm personally very, very excited to have an opportunity to get, you know, hear your story and uh, feel a little bit like we were there from, <laughs> from hearing the details. So thanks a lot for coming on for the interview. You're talking about where you were at in your career um, in terms of technical camera work and then feeling like a guest because Deacons has this whole team that we know is famously, I, I mean, I've listened to his podcast a lot and I think I have an understanding of how he hires artists, what kind of faith he puts into his artists, kind of like Denis, and then it makes sense to want to stick to a team. Did you at any point with your type of job being very technical, do you feel like you still get to not so much put your signature on your work? Do you get to do things where you're like, you know, even small decisions where you're making a decision with lighting or with what you're doing with the camera where you're like, yeah, I did my research. I feel like I understood what the director wanted here. And I'm actually putting some solid input into here to make this better than someone else would have done it or someone who didn't care. I'm, I'm just curious if your work has that space in it at all i'll definitely say i was in my element on that job and working with roger you realize what a master he is the first shot i did on the show was steady cam shot and it's a shot of behind love when she's walking into the police station to do the glass scene with robin wright's character it's a small it's a quick shot it's just she's going through the door we went on to set we rehearsed it twice 
we shot it once and it was perfect. They wanted to move on. And I think we did a second take. And I was like, that's beautiful. No effort. Like not no effort, lots of effort. But when it comes down to when that button's on and when you're rolling the camera, it was just, it was beautiful. <laughs> it's just done. But in a sort of effortless manner, there's not, there's no shouting. There's no chaos. The set is very quiet and controlled. There's not lots of chatter and hollering. There's definitely no screaming or anything like that. And that just adds to the environment. And when once we got that take, I was like, okay, this is how we're going to do it properly. <laughs> right. And that's how we did it. <laughs> there was no, a- there was no error for margin, neither. When it had to happen, it had to happen. And I certainly did have times when, especially in um, in the police station, when the first scene when Kay is walking along the corridor and he's get, getting called a skin job by people and getting bumped in the whole thing. That was all steady cam. And, you know, I had a couple of points where I just lost my rhythm. I lost my rhythm with Kay and, you know, focus wasn't quite there. And I heard murmurings like, oh, but I had the team supporting me. They were like, no, 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 don't worry. We'll get on the next one. And we did. And it was great. The funny thing is that working in that environment, working with Roger, I needed a lot less assistance around in terms of technologies or extra takes or having to do anything. Like we got it on the first or second take. We just got it. Just because that's how he shoots. I think ultimately that's what translates onto the screen, I hope. I mean, yeah, I think this is the second or third time already in this conversation where I've heard you say something along the lines of, I could tell this was special, I could tell this was different, and I hope that comes across. I think I, I can speak for all of us here that that definitely 100% comes across. I think our we've talked about our first experiences coming out of the theater after seeing 2049, mostly just being blown away and having a hard time even describing it, but knowing instantly that you had watched something that at least for us was definitely going to become a classic and something we would return to again and again to see different details in terms of the shots, the lighting, the color, the music, just everything. And you know, when you watch something like that, that comes together so well, that that's not an everyday thing and not every film is like that. And then for it to be in the franchise and for us Blade Runner lovers and fans to be in that element where you're getting this chance at a first viewing of something that's been dear to your heart your entire life and to see all the people like you who have put all that extra passion and effort in, I definitely want to assure you that it 100% translates into the work. That's awesome. Thanks. <laughs> Just so, so for technical technical background for some people. So so can you give us a little bit of a quick overview into A camera versus B camera, focus pulling versus two shooting? You know, you're talking about how you had the steady cam shot of K coming into the police station. Can you maybe like just take us through exactly what your personal role was and also how this particular camera setup might be similar or different from other films? So um Typically, a camera focus puller runs the department. Uh, technically, in terms of crew, equipment, the whole thing, they're the the, H, the head of department basically next to the DP. They run the camera side. Uh, that's a camera. B camera will do. It depends on job to job. But on this particular job, B camera was the Steadicam. Uh, the B camera operator was Peter Cavacciutti, who I was very grateful to be working with, a British Steadicam operator who's been doing Steadicam very long time, kind of since it's come out and is a master at his craft. And I was very grateful to have him next to me as well uh, from the UK. So we were all Steadicam shots. They were used sparingly by Roger because he does use Steadicam quite sparingly. I mean, he talks about that on his podcast as well quite a lot, which was nice because when we had a shot up, that was our shot. There's not a camera trying to do something else or trying to fish in right, right. like you would have on, like you would have on, 
also feature films are very different to episodic television. Episodic television, you'll typically have multiple cameras, two or three, trying to you know cross shoot all the time and do all of this. I mean, we didn't cross shoot very often on Blade Runner, a uh, couple of times only, um, mostly one camera. But if it was mostly A camera, if it was B camera, it was Steadicam, or we would do a little bit of cross shooting on cranes. For example, the seawall scene at the very end, where they have the whole fight scene with the spinners in the water and on the on the seawall, which is a crazy sequence. And that whole that whole tank was just insane. Absolutely <laughs> insane. Purpose built for the for the movie. Nefsa special effects did an incredible job. I mean, when you see all that water rushing onto those spinners and all that, that's water. That's four tons of water being dropped out of dump tanks straight onto the set. The amount of real atmospheric special effects that we had on set and in camera was unbelievable. Unbelievable, actually. And I, yeah, very nice to see and nice to experience, especially in a world of, well, whereas everyone knows, everything's generally against a green screen and, you know, you're putting in minimal stuff around people, but this was not the case on this film. This was, like I said, four tons of water being dropped in all at once. Uh, yeah, quite something. One of the things that I have a question about in terms of the difficulty where you're, say you're in a close-up, there's the scene where Kay and Joy are, Kay's looking through that machine and he's going through birth records. Um, and it's a very tight close-up and it moves a couple of times, but then you have the effect of Joy not being there, but of course the actor is there. How is shooting a scene like that? Technical, definitely. Shooting these types of scenes, which are often done in many films, you know, you're doing a composite. A and C and T and G. The alphabet of you. All from four symbols. I'm only two. One and zero. Half as much, but twice as elegant, sweetheart. So we're shooting an A side, and a, not an A side and a B side, but we're shooting multiple layers and then have to put them in later. You'd shoot Ryan clean, where he's just acting. You'd shoot him with joy, with and without. You'd shoot her alone. And then through the magic of visual effects and lots of time and many hour, man hours spent, they'll composite the shot to where it's what, what you see on screen. But we're literally, and it's not specific to that shot, Generally, what we do is for, for complex things like this, we will build them out of many small elements and which are later then composited in, in post-production. I noticed in some of the, to follow up on Jamie's question, I noticed in some of the behind the scenes stuff, certainly in the love scene, you can see a sort of tripod chair thing set up behind Ryan Gosling. I'm assuming to keep him mostly still and make sure that he stayed in his mark for all of you know the different shots you can really <laughs> I, i've seen it no no i mean in in behind the scenes, oh, in the behind the scenes. yeah 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 gotcha, in behind gotcha, the scenes gotcha, gotcha. no 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 <laughs> of course not in the finished <laughs> film um but that made me think is because to get someone to keep their marks on such a specific it's like the margin of error is only a few millimeters really if you're trying to composite something else on him is that the only way to do it or how else do you get an actor to stay in such a specific because you know if it's when you're doing the city passes it's not easy but everything's holding still so you do the multiple passes and you have computer software to do that with a human it's got to be much harder what, what did you notice about that multiple ways to skin a cat that's for sure okay um you know even if you just take basic green screen you can green screen it or you can rotoscope it 
rotoscoping is a lot more work and a lot more money than just doing a simple green screen. So you try to do a perfect key if you can. Most of the time that doesn't happen. They have to rotoscope it anyway. So it's really a plan of, well, what are you going to do on the set? You're going to do as much of it in camera as possible, as opposed to leaving it to the VFX people afterwards. And this was the goal. And that's why we're going to do it manually, if you, if you want to say, right? We're going to do it in camera. And that's why we yeah, put a stand behind Ryan or whatever. So it's absolutely locked off and you actually do it in the camera. 100%, you know, right. then there's minimal stuff to, that you have to replace. You could almost just like comp it or like minimal corrections, cut a garbage mat out or whatever you need to do, as opposed to having to deal with like hair going off the green into something else, which is a nightmare, you know, mm-hmm. these a fine gar- details. Garbage mat. What's a garbage, what's a garbage mat? What's a garbage mat. Um, great question. So <laughs> let's say, um, let's say you put an actor against green. The only thing that needs to happen is they don't need to leave the green area. So as long as they're within the green and they don't leave, but if they're in a frame this big, let's say, and the actor's this big, the green only needs to be there. And then you can cut that out and put it into your composite. And that's the garbage mat. It's like a garbage mat to me is like taking a pair of scissors and you just go click, 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 click. And you roughly cut around and you'll do the fine work later. That's what a garbage mat Got is. Got it. Okay, that's cool. You're just taking your scissors and you're cutting out like a big shape that you can work on later. It doesn't have to fill the whole frame. You can garbage mat it out and you can remove it and put it somewhere else. That's what a garbage right, mat is. Right, right. In That's terms so cool. of uh, the the way the film was shot, obviously a lot of films are not shot sequentially. Um, they do sometimes they do the bigger pieces first, or they do it in the middle, or whatever the budget allows, or whatever whatever it's easiest for certain schedules or that kind of thing. But with Blade Runner, what was the shoot like? Was it important that there was some type of sequential shooting, or was it kind of all over the place like every film? Well, we only got Harrison at the end, for example, and he only plays at the end of the film. Yes, there was a bit of sequential shooting, but not not perfectly sequential, obviously. Like with any film, you're dealing with actor schedules and um, production schedules, location schedules as well. You know, that location might not necessarily be available for the time that you need the actor in that place. Um, certainly a lot of logistics going on. Um, so sequentially, not so much, but I guess maybe in some way they were lucky in so much as that, you know, Harrison Ford's character only appears later in the film and he only needed to come at the end, which was nice. It was a nice way to kind of like finish. Yeah. How much of it was, was shot? Um, like a location shoot as opposed to just this because you know we hear a lot about the soundstage and how massive it was and how it accommodated for example that huge water tank that you're talking about did you leave that a lot and what are some sequences that people might notice that in we ran out of stages like we literally ran out of stages and we're building sets they were building sets uh in warehouses or remote locations to get sets done lapd corridor which could be on a stage not on a stage wow. somewhere else the big sets, the big set pieces, if I think about and the sets were really, really incredible. I'd have to say BB's, BB's bar was a big one. BB's bar where, you you know, we, we, we meet them for the first time and go through that whole thing. Certainly Wallace's office. And he has that chat with Harrison at the end. That was huge. I mean, literally talking goes all the way up to the fire lane of, of the stage. And it's one of the big stages here. Um, but yeah, we did run out of space. And we did have to do some stuff, either build sets somewhere else, or we did do some location work, certainly. I mean, the fir- the very first day we were shooting, we were in a forest, which we were doing the, 
the stuff for Dr. Helene Skellen, where she's going through her time contraption and, you know, flipping through all the memories and she has the bug and the, the, the scarab on the leaf and all of that. I mean, that's in a real forest, you know, the whole thing. So, yeah, we definitely had location work as well. But so that was a real, we actually talked about that on the Stilene episode about how much of that was actually shot in a forest versus digitally. That was actually shot in a forest. It was a real forest. It was the first day of shooting. It was shoot mm-hmm. day one. Roger went into the forest with his camera team and call time was like seven. And at 7.20, we were turning over. And I thought, mm, that's amazing. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> you know, again, effortless, just do it. Magic happens. <laughs> Did you did you go to the orphanage? That's another location, right? That they shot at. Which part of the orphanage? The, exterior, uh, interior. The, the the interior staircase wasn't that in a factory somewhere? Oh, the interior staircase of the. Oh, the, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. The orphanage. Well, the orphanage. Orphanage is certainly the orphanage was split between many locations. Uh, but if you speak about the steps, then the steps was a was a factory. Got a lot of factories in Hungary. <laughs> a lot of disused <laughs> factories. And we shoot them a lot. That's an old dis- disused Soviet factory, basically, or Hungarian factory. And then other parts of the orphanage where you go deeper into the orphanage, yeah, on stage. Th- th- maybe this will be a boring question, but we could figure it out. But uh, how did the safety work in things like that because i imagine there's a lot you have to warn the crew about and like off limits areas and stuff like that in an old abandoned soviet factory that sounds like just a disaster waiting to happen safety's safety's good because we're very conscious about it there was an incident quite a few years ago this camera assistant named sarah who was killed on train tracks i don't know if anyone knows about the story but we did slates for sarah for years and it certainly highlighted a lot of safety issues in the film industry and i'm very very staunch about safety and a lot of people know that particularly because of those incidents and we work in camera and i've known people who have who have passed away uh, like mark milson there's the mark milson foundation i mean you could google it and I would recommend if you wanted to go go have a look at that that case, the Mark Milsom case. Um, and it's a, it's a foundation now to raise awareness and, and funds for, for, for these things. Uh, but we take it very seriously and we work in a safe manner because I've, and I've, I've said this is for for decades and I learned this from from my, my mentors is that we're not saving lives. We're entertaining people and there's no reason for anyone to get harmed or hurt or die from doing this safety is a is a core principle and uh, on any feature film or any job nowadays that is worth its salt i would say is definitely having safety meetings and has a lot of especially now with covid as well health and safety has now stepped up it's had to step up its game even more because of covid and budgets have had to increase because of covid that's a big topic in around obviously that was a huge cost increase to productions that no one you know no one was expecting that and if you expect if you look at like time rosters and how films get made from like pre-production production production, post-production and then final release covid really put a whole roster on hold some stuff got done actually an incredible amount did get done and we can see that on our screens now through all the various services but there was certainly a pause safety is a big concern and will continue to be because i feel that even as individuals, crew are a lot more conscious of this topic and take it a lot more seriously. And everyone does take it quite seriously. Um, and it has, what's nice is it's become a lot more of an open forum where people can say, you know, what about this or that without fear of being reprimanded or, you know, losing the next job or something like that. It, it, it is taken seriously now. Safety is good, I would say, and it's a, it's a key point. So in terms of a certain scene on a certain day, let's just say, for instance, when Kay is walking in the desert in um, Las Vegas. What kind of rehearsal do you go through? Are you there in that set days before? And then like that morning, like 
and then using stand-ins perhaps like what's that whole process like to where you're finally we're shooting this this day the actors are scheduled to come in all planned it's so it's so planned it's not it's not walking on the morning and let's figure it out it's definitely planned you know we've, we've put a camera not all the time but generally the camera's been there before and looked at it and roger did a lot of stuff with the that shot of k going through the desert with the orange what is an iconic shot i mean even in cinematography fields because it was done in camera and not in post you know he had a filter specially made by tiffin which is a mix of two filters put into one basically quite strong we had to test that and we actually had some technical problems with that filter and the camera we were using where it would highlight dead pixels or it would interfere with the signal because of the color because we were doing so much in camera that no one really does uh, in ordinary terms and, and we found these issues that we had to deal with because it's too expensive to find out on the day when you have the actor there on the day of shooting the clock's ticking you can't go oh okay well now i need to do xyz it has to be figured out before and certainly when we weren't doing shots as B camera, because we didn't have so many shots in the how many months we were on production, I was pre prepping. Even if it's one camera shooting, we have five cameras on set. We will pre-rig one here, we'll do one there, get it ready for that. Maybe one's on the Steadicam because when you come to the day of production, it, it has to go like clockwork so you can make the schedule. It's definitely planned and as much as possible, a lot of preparation. Roger also prepares a lot pre-lighting and preparing and he's very meticulous more meticulous than i've seen any other dp even if you speak to uh, his crew the amount of paperwork research or whatever that he gives to them to do their job it's kind of i wouldn't say easy but he makes it easy for them in terms of that because it's homework done there's a lot of preparation that's all something that i've that i've heard about uh from a couple of other people who've worked on the set is that especially Denis, is very open to this idea that sometimes things happen for a reason and you should sort of trust your instinct, right? We talk about the original film, you know, how Rutger, you know, rewrote his final soliloquy, how Edward James almost, you know, delivered the final lines as an improvisation. A lot of moments where things happen spontaneously. In 2049, you know, there were whole sound cues that changed in post-production. There were, you know, things were shifted around quite a bit. Uh, it seems like part of the kind of the makeup of Blade Runner is this idea of you can plan for everything, but when the plans shift, follow it, right? Were there any moments that you can think of where you saw that happen, where the day of the shoot, a choice was made or a decision happened and things shifted to accommodate it? What are moments of spontaneity that you can remember? I'll say first off that don't forget we shot a lot of stuff that never made the film. When Denis talks about that four and a half hour cut or whatever, I truly believe that story because there's a lot of stuff we shot, which is not simply there. I would say what you're mentioning happened on the post side. Mm. Everything we shot was kind of planned and had a way to go. Sure, there's some improv improvisation here and there, but generally to do with acting or on the set in the time when it's to do with like small bits of dialogue or whatever but i wouldn't say too much which i would say it was prepared yeah that's cool it, it's well it seems like like deacons and because deacons and, and Denis did all this sort of pre-planning pre-pre-production work right so they were really ready to go with the look and the feel and the flow of the movie and so it sounds like they were so prepared that they were able to you know, during post-production, change it around because they had gotten everything that they needed. I'll ask one more question because I'm going to have to jump off early, which is breaking my heart because I don't want to at all. I'm wondering if you could give us a little bit of a window, window into working with the actors, you know, like what it was some of some of the memories you took from that. You know, I know you spent a lot of time with Ryan Gosling, Anadarmas, um, others who were involved in the set. What are some stories you have from that? 
to kind of bring our listeners back there with you to Budapest a few years ago. Ryan is lovely. That's all I can say. Sean was lovely as well. I mean, amazing to have her on set. Like, you know, come on, iconic from like the original. Harrison was amazing. He came in at the end. He, he was a very sympathetic man. He is a very sympathetic man, lovely. He'll join the lunch queue and sit down with the crew and eat. He won't jump the queue. He'll sit down in the tailgate and be talking on the phone. He's just... He's just a regular guy, you know, and that was just amazing. Just amazing. And he's a professional as well. When it comes to the shooting, like he's just a pro. That was very enjoyable. Ryan was also great. I mean, everyone was great. I can't say anything bad. Jared Leto was my second time working with him. First time I worked with him was Lord of War in South Africa, which was 2004, quite a while ago. But he's a method actor. You know, he has his thing. So not too much interaction, let's say. They were all great, you know, and very professional. Anna de Aramis. Joy, just a lovely person. Same with uh, with loves uh, Sylvia. Sylvia was Hooks. anything anything surprising about them to you? Anything you didn't expect? Positively surprising. No. <laughs> <laughs> or or just, negatively, it's all right. No, 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 no. They were just so cool. I mean, positively mm. positively surprising was how cool Harrison was, and actually all of them. I mean, nothing bad to say. I think everyone was just there to do their thing and. And had that energy about them. That fits. That that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> to piggyback on Patrick's question, uh, I would ask just because you know you learn about directors and cinematographers, and then you start to go back and watch their catalog. and And I do want to come back and ask you some questions personally about what you like in film and cinematography. But before I ask that, did you ever notice any conversations or just about the interaction between Denis? and Roger Deakins, both from just a general director and DP relationship, but also them in particular. I know they've worked together a lot. I know they really respect each other. And I'm curious to see if you ever saw interactions where, not that there was a disagreement necessarily, but where they were working something out, maybe on the day of shooting or, or any other insight, you know, fly on the wall type of stuff that you can give our listeners. Nothing that comes to mind, unfortunately, and I'm okay. sorry. That's okay. <laughs> no, it, it really, it flowed. You know, and, and the other thing was, even if something like that were to happen, it would never be apparent to the crew. That makes sense. Because Behind closed doors or something. No, no. Denis runs a very quiet, controlled, nice set. You know, you can feel that from him. Absolutely. You can feel that if, if someone like dropped a cup or a needle or a pin, everyone would turn around and go, what was that? <laughs> you know, it's that kind of. And when you in that environment for so long months and months day in day out you know you get into that into that mood into that vibe and and that is what it was like working there i would say there was no drama at all not that i can think of i really can't think of anything <laughs> you know it, it flowed was there a moment uh, or a, a shooting day that stands out to you i mean obviously the film was special special to us in every way possible but was there a particular set piece or or maybe a few weeks where you're filming where you're like this these few days were really amazing on the set for whatever reason personally i want to be real for you you are real for me i think you know k's apartment the love scene in k's apartment was something quite special for me because i'd been involved in it from the very beginning in a way in a very small way Really, I mean, I wasn't I wasn't critical to the mission. It's just, I will state that. I was not critical to that mission. I was, you know, bringing a camera on and doing my thing, but I was very happy to be part of it. But the, yeah, all, a lot of the scenes with, with Joy were amazing to do because of that whole, how to tackle the problem of how she's going to be this digital character, but has to be a real character at the same time. The stuff on the rooftop, that rooftop set, truly amazing. 
orphanage as well, but I'd say the interior of the orphanage, where you have all the kids on the separate tables sorting out through all the processor boards and all the rest to try and like fish whatever they were fishing out. And definitely the seawall, like I mentioned earlier. The, the seawall was an amazing set. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to finish the film. I had to leave a week or two before the end of production, but still I came back and spoke to Roger and the team and everyone. But yeah, I would say particularly as well, Wallace's office, which I mentioned before, which had the, the water all around. And what Roger did with the, the lighting and the water effects, as well as Love's office, I would say those would be the most iconic ones for me. Yeah, I love how you can definitely get the sense from a lighting and shooting perspective that if you listen to Roger give advice to young cinematographers and he talks about, you know, practice with a naked bulb, just go into a dark room, turn one light bulb on and then work it with a camera and see how the angles change and the lighting changes. And then you can extrapolate that all the way up to the special rig that they had built for like the Harrison Ford or for the uh, Deckard and Wallace conversation. And I feel like you can feel all that experience. Yeah. The, 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 the ring light? Uh-huh. The ring light and all that. The Well, ring light. Just like 260 like pups on a on a rig. I mean, yeah. Mm -hmm. Amazing. That truss rig had to be custom shaped, particularly for that thing. <laughs> Right. You know, right. You, you don't get that out of a shop. I don't know. know if you would agree, but give me your opinion. I, I get this sense about Roger Deakins that he's able to not only build on his experience, a very extensive experience throughout the years, but he's able to maintain some sort of simplicity within this complicated rigs and custom stuff. You know, I feel like when he talks about what cameras he uses and all of that, there's something very core about it that goes back to the nature of photography and the nature of that job. Do you, did you get that sense as well? Totally. Totally. I mean, I, I definitely, cause I did have time at points. I definitely walked the set and walked the stage and saw what he was doing and um, unbelievable. And, Definitely, like you said, even if it's something hugely technical, ultimately it's quite simple in terms of its concept and how he will pull it off. Yeah, very, very good. Technically, I would say one of the bigger challenges was uh, the scene in the in the casino at the end where Ryan and Harrison are having a fight. We have all the stage dancers in the back doing their various things. That was it. Looks so simple on screen, but technically, that took a lot of work to achieve because there's so many lighting cues going on and camera movements, plus you're comping all these digital characters into the background who weren't there when we were shooting. You know, that was shot by a totally different unit, different time in the same place. But to get that all right technically is amazing. And the way Roger handled it, handled it was incredible. Like he really knows his stuff from a technical point to pull it together. Certainly saved post-production in the studio and everyone tons of time and money to make it just like gel together in his way. Because yeah, he has that experience. Yeah, you can definitely see it in the work. That's that's amazing. What a what a cool profession and what a great opportunity you had to work with him. That's really incredible. Forever grateful. I would like to know, uh, speaking of the rooftop scene, I think that that scene particularly is really, really amazing. Could you walk us through what was like, what it was like to walk into that set for our viewers who obviously have seen the film, most of them, I would hope. That's the moment in the film where, of course, after you, Kay's been to Sapper's house, you know, he's had to, he's been through a really rough day. He's been to the LAPD headquarters. That was pretty rough as well. Then he gets home and then he meets Joy and things get a little bit more personal. But that scene on the rooftop is the really the first time where we're submerged back into the world that Ridley Scott created. So it's really magical with 
the rain and the lights and the the woman on the screen in back who's not like a geisha, but it's certainly hearkening back to the geisha in the original film. What was that like? Felt exactly like that. Felt like we were going back to the first film. That's what I felt. There was a lot of atmosphere, like physical atmosphere used and amazing lighting and set design by Rod and by Roger and the production designer. It did have that feeling. It was like, okay, this is Blade Runner. You know, 2049, 2019, whatever. It's Blade Runner. End of sentence. Just like, Technically, from the other side, like joy in the rain was another technical thing that we were trying to figure out. Like, you know, if the water hits her hand, what what happens? Does it go through or does it touch? Or, you know, where does the droplet go? That was like from early, like prep stages. When we actually shot it, it was amazing. And it's also that point in the story where now, you know, Kay can finally take Joy outside. And that's a pivotal moment for his character in the film, obviously, because he's like now given her some sort of freedom, which was a it's a huge pivot point in the story is it not as we progress through like the next act so yeah that's that scene was was definitely uh special it's very long too i mean long in the in the best sense of of the word where you again it's just this submersion and it's quiet within that quiet there's the rain there's the voices you know that ominous voice in the background and then there's the music uh which was just written so perfectly for it one of the things about 2049 most fandom really loves the film i mean it's one of those one of those very rare sequels that fandom just loves and embraces wholeheartedly i mean and most people you talk to will say this is as better maybe if not better than the original or they call it a masterpiece uh but it it, it was one of many times where denny said okay we're, we're gonna go to blade runner this is a blade runner film and we're taking you back and some of the criticism from some of the outliers um <laughs> has was that it didn't feel like the original, the sights and the sounds weren't there, but to me, they were all there. Every every bit uh, in different ways, everything that Ridley Scott created, Denis recreated in his own way, but felt authentically like you were back in that world. And that's really hard to do. It's really hard to do and also make it your own. What was it like to be around the people responsible for creating that atmosphere, knowing that it had to get right? Was it something where, where there was nervousness or like, no, we're confident in what we're doing and here it is? We were confident and here it is. And uh, we also had the sense of, I certainly had the sense of responsibility to bring the A game every day as best I could. We, we had to, there was no question. Yeah. Absolutely no question, because it was too, mm-hmm. too, too, too special, you know. Mm-hmm. And I certainly like, I mean, I definitely had an, an emotional investment in this film because I, I loved the first one, you know, I've always been a fan. I love sci-fi, love sci-fi films uh, as a genre. For years, wanted to work on one. I mean, I don't know, 15 years before I worked on something that was a sci-fi film, always having to want to work on one. And then, you know, to get that opportunity was great. Uh, but I think everyone felt that they had to bring their A game, and they did. I have a two-part question for you because, again, obviously we can't go too long, but I, I'd love to hear your perspective on film in general. So feel free to throw anything you want in there in terms of your favorite cinematography or your favorite films that mean something to you. But for more specific questions, 
One, does the fact that you've been working for so long in a technical aspect of cinematography and filmmaking, are you still able to enjoy film without getting too bogged down with thinking about the lighting and the this and the that? Because, you know, I know the more I study film, it certainly, for me, it only increases how much I love watching a film, even though I know how they're doing some of the things and some of the magic. But you're so much more involved technically that I wonder how that affects you. That's question one. Question two is I would love to hear about your first theater big screen viewing of the finished 2049 film. I would just love to hear how you felt and what you went through because I'm sure everyone wants to hear about that. Suspension of disbelief is a glorious gift if you can maintain it. That's all I can say about watching a film as a, as a person who works on film sets. Yes, I will definitely have points where I have to sit down and technically analyze a film. But if a film is good enough, it will instantly pull me out of that and I will watch it as a typical audience member, let's say. Mm -hmm. And that leads me to your second question about watching it on the big screen. And I def I went to watch it twice on the big screen and I was blown away both times and just grateful I could do that. I only started to do, let's say, I mean, I did obviously in the back of my mind, I'm doing technical technical analysis all the time because it's, you know, I'm working on it and whatever. And if I see something bad, or something that comes out, I'll look at it. But there was only one time that I saw that when I was watching it, only once. So the theater experience was great. Owning it on digital and examining it on 4K and, you know, obviously one starts to get more into it. And I was very conscious of that because I did want to eventually analyze the work technically after it was done, given time and, you know, it takes time. Can't always just watch it straight. As it comes out and it was released on cinemas, it was huge excitement and I loved that experience so much. Um, but later on, getting it digitally and being able to examine it, like I go back to the original Blade Runner and I was I went into 2049 with this thought. I was like, I really have to do a good job because in the original Blade Runner, they some years ago, they did a 4K scan of the film print. And there are scenes in the beginning where Harrison is at the, the noodle bar and he's eating and he's sharp and then he turns like this. And he's soft, but you would never know that in that time because it was all printed on film, projected on a film, and film has a different tolerance when it comes to these sorts of things. And no one would really have noticed that. But in 4K, you see it and he's soft. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't want that to happen. <laughs> and we're shooting digital. It's got to be sharp all the time. <laughs> right, right. So certainly in the beginning, like, like elation, I couldn't be more proud. That's what I'll say. Yeah, you deserve to be proud for sure. My final question to you would be as a as a moviegoer, as a, a fan of film and entertainment, um, and as it relates to Blade Runner, favorite moments in both films for you? Not as someone who worked on the film, not maybe a, your favorite moment out, like you were saying, Kay's apartment, the love scene, a favorite moment for you? I have to say it's the the LAPD scene in 2049, the, the LA, all the police station work. For some reason, I don't know why, but everything in the LAPD, whether it's in her office or him walking up and down or him on the on the machine going through all the, the scans, like we said earlier, with, with Joy, that was something for me. I don't know why. It just had some sort of mood about it. Certainly the seawall scene as well at the end. I mean, that's it's quite powerful, you know, as it reaches the crescendo of the film. In the original, 
I mean, the whole thing. I can't, <laughs> I can't pick. I can't pick something out right now. <laughs> it's just ultimately with 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 Blade Runner and and twenty and Blade Runner twenty forty nine. A colleague of I, I I I can't quote this, but a colleague of mine said it. It's 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 a mood. The whole film is just a mood. It's the best way to describe it. Like the naysayers are just not into that vibe, but you guys obviously get it, mm-hmm. which is awesome. You know, the camera's there. Dunk. It's not all shaky handheld all over the place and you know it's just it's there it's taking it in it's the music it's the atmosphere it's the vibe once you get it it's just so easy to be drawn into it and it's amazing it's true movie magic yeah it's a it's a world that really was created twice which is a miracle to me especially 2049 i mean we were all so apprehensive and i know we've read about meetings denis had we've talked about it many times where he was like okay we have a high chance of failure here because the the standard is set very high. Let's just go in there and do the best we can do. And I think from listening to other you know actors on the set and you know the music director and or the 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 person in charge of sound design and as well as yourself, I think we've constantly gotten this feedback about the respect that Villeneuve and Deacons had for their artists and all their employees as well as just the fact that everyone who worked on this seemed to really care immensely about it in a way that I, I can't imagine you get on every single set that you're on. And that totally translates. And we're all so really grateful for all of your work and for your contribution to this incredible world that us and all of our fans love so much. So that's it for me, but thank you very much for coming on and sharing your insight with us. I, I'm really grateful to have been able to speak with you. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Before we leave, uh, can you tell us the project that you can talk about? What else people can see your work in? What other films and shows that are public that people can find you or your work? In? Certainly. Thanks. I'd say one of the bigger, bigger tentpole pictures that we complete that I completed in the past few years was uh, Terminator: Dark Fate. Okay. Oh, interesting. Um, that was uh, really cool to work on, and also I'd say one of the one of the check marks for me of like you know being being able to work on a Terminator film with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Linda Hamilton. Come on, I mean, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> come on, come on to say every day and say hello to Linda Hamilton, and she's just like one of the nicest people ever on this planet, like unbelievably so. And it's just like what. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's pretty cool. Regardless of the film, I mean, yeah, that that, that would be that would be one of them. I, I thought it was pretty cool. The Witcher, as was as was mentioned earlier, season one. I know season two is coming out now. I didn't I didn't do that. Is Henry Cavill as nice as he appears to be? Oh, he seems like just the kindest like, man. He he is he is. What you see is what you get. <laughs> yeah, like that's Henry. He's just. He's just a nice guy. He's awesome. Yeah. That's what you see is what you get with Henry. There's no no nonsense there. Other projects, I did, I did some episodic stuff. We did I did um, Angel of Darkness, which was season two of The Alienist, which was a show That's for... Right. Um, yes. I love that show. It's fantastic. Yeah, I've seen both seasons. Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. That was, uh, that was, that was all of my, uh, that was all of my 2019 basically. And then uh, there's another project which was shot during pandemic times, which is going to be coming out with Amblin pictures, uh, which is called distant. And that's going to be released I th- uh, early next year. 
for late this year. I'm not sure. I have to check the dates. Also a, a sci-fi film, feature film. I generally prefer features as opposed to episodics. But like I said earlier, the, the, the genre lines are blurring now, you know, and what is a movie and what is a TV series is kind of also in, intermixing with all the different ser streaming services that are coming out now. You know, it's easy to do a, a three-parter or a four-parter or a six-parter 10 parter as opposed to the older traditional models there'll be more stuff coming that's fantastic yeah very exciting. thank you chris for coming on the show we really appreciate it and uh, we look forward to seeing more your work thank you so much and i really appreciate your time and uh, inviting me here thank you thank you chris. Sure. nice to meet you if you would like to find out more about shoulder of orion the blade runner podcast please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com if you would like to support the show via Patreon, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thank you.